Welcome. Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Sokolo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yangna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabrieleno Tongva and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Sarah Suarez, and I'm the Senior Manager of Programs and Operations at Socalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Socalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and we present conversations like this one. You can find us at SokoloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and on YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. We were founded in 2003, and we are now celebrating our 20th year. Our program tonight asks, what is the state of surveillance? We are honored to co-present this program with ACLU of Southern California and the Progress Network. I'll now turn it over to Christian Lebano from ACLU of Southern California. Thank you, Sarah. Good evening. I'm Christian Lebano, and I'm the annual events manager at the ACLU of Southern California. We're so pleased to partner with Zocalo Public Square and the Progress Network. ACLU SoCal was founded in 1923 by Upton Sinclair after he was arrested in Signal Hill for attempting to read the Bill of Rights to the striking dock workers. For 100 years, we defended the Constitution and worked to ensure everyone receives fair treatment under the law. ACLU SoCal has done groundbreaking intersectional work on immigration, voting rights, economic justice, houselessness, LGBTQ rights, police and criminal justice reform, gender equality, and education equity. For more information about our work, or to learn how you can support us, please visit aclusocal.org. I'm pleased to introduce our moderator for tonight, Ramesh Srinivasan. Ramesh speaks about the intersection of technology, innovation, politics, business, and society. His mission is to help repair the disconnect between designers and users, producers and consumers, and tech elites and the rest of us toward a more democratic internet. Ramesh is a professor at UCLA in the Information Studies and Design Media Arts Departments and is the founder and director of UC Digital Cultures Lab. He's the author of three books, Whose Global Village? Rethinking How Technology Impacts Our World, After the Internet, and Beyond the Valley. He appears frequently on NPR, The Young Turks, MSNBC, BBC, CNN, and other major media networks. And his writing has been published by outlets, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. Ramesh, over to you. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, it's really, really wonderful to be with you all this evening. Thank you for making the time to come here. And thank you to all of you who are joining us online this evening. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, so my name is Ramesh Srinivasan. I'm a professor at UCLA and the director of the UC Digital Cultures Lab. It's an honor to moderate this conversation with all of you. And I'm pleased to introduce our guests tonight. First, uh, Mashinka Firunz Hakopian is an associate professor of technology and social justice at the Art Center College of Design. Um, she was a 2021 visiting Mellon professor in the practice at Occidental College where she co-curated the exhibition Encoding Futures, Critical Imaginaries of AI with Meldia Yasayan at Oxy Arts. Um, she is the guest co-editor for the spring 2023 uh, special issue of Art Papers on AI. Her book, The Institute for Other Intelligences, 
was released by X Artists Books and has been presented at the Centre Pompidou, at the New Museum with Rhizome, and at 2020 Art, Arts and Archives. Uh, welcome, Mashinka. Um, yes. And Faiza Patel, welcome, um, is a senior director of the Brennan Centers, um, the Brennan Center for Justices, Liberty, and National Security Program. She is a nationally recognized expert on government surveillance, um, especially its targeting of minority communities, domestic terrorism, and the impact of technology on civil rights and civil liberties. Patel has testified before the Senate and House Homeland Security Committees about government surveillance programs, authored several influential reports, and is frequently featured in major publications such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and Just Security. Born and raised in Pakistan, Patel is a graduate of Harvard College and the NYU School of Law. Welcome, Faiza, this evening. And wonderf our, our wonderful colleague from the ACLU here, um, Mohammed Tajsar, is a senior staff attorney um, at the ACLU here in Southern California. Mohammed is primarily a litigator whose work focuses on national security policy, civil rights in border regions, um, electronic surveillance, and protecting individuals' rights in a digital world. Uh, Mohammed's current docket includes Fazaga versus the FBI, which is a long-standing challenge to the FBI's surveillance of mosques in Orange County. And Adlerstein and Phillips versus Customs and Border Protection, two constitutional challenges to the surveillance and detention of immigrant rights lawyers and nonprofit leaders. Welcome, Mohammed, tonight. So thank you all for joining me tonight. Um, before we get started, I'd like to remind our audience that we will be taking questions toward the end of the program. If you're watching online, you can submit questions to the live chat on YouTube. Uh, with that, let's get started. So what I want to do is just start by just laying a couple provocations, and then we'll, we'll move into questions and have a very open-ended discussion, and then we'll have time for all of us to um, ask questions you know, within the time frame and hang out afterward, which I think is also very important. Um, so many of us, you know, when we think of the term surveillance, we immediately think of 1984, right, by George Orwell, which was written in 1949, right? Big Brother is watching you. This is a frame that sees surveillance as something that's primarily carried out by the state, okay? Then we sort of have so many other pivot points, right, in our recent imagination, in our recent history, in relation to surveillance. Of course, this term privacy and surveillance are very interconnected with one another, and now data and surveillance are very interconnected as well. In 2013, many of us know um, the National Security Agency and GCHQ, which is uh, the United Kingdom's version of the National Security Agency, um, the uh, top was blown on uh, their sp spying program, which it turns out on, on many levels is considered illegal. Uh, of course, this is a connection to Edward Snowden, uh, the documentary Citizen Four, which won the Academy Award, some of you have seen. And um, at that time, I, I remember President Obama said, well, we're not actually collecting your data of your phone calls or what you're doing. We're collecting data about that data, metadata. So it may not be the content, but it might be who, what, when, where, Maybe why and how, not sure. <laughs> um, and perhaps this is also a moment when a big question that I think was, was, was kind of brought to the surface, which is whether we can have privacy and security coexist, right? And then this question of whose privacy and whose security comes up, right? Is there a false choice between privacy and security? And who are we speaking about? In what context in relation to such? But it also brought up quite visibly the collaboration between non-state actors like private corporations and the state, right? We know there was a connection between some internet service providers, mobile service providers like Verizon, AT&T, and so on, and perhaps even big tech companies on some level, though Larry Page from Google sort of denied their involvement in that, pro in that program. Then we pivot to another kind of moment, right, where we see the another kind of catastrophe or sensation or kind of apocalyptic moment kind of comes up 
which is uh, the moment of, of Cambridge Analytica, right? I was live on Morning Joe, like right when that story broke. <laughs> and I saw Mika's jaw literally drop right in front of me. She's like, what are you talking about? They are psychographically targeting us through the collection of personal data. But who is the they? And how is this practice one of data aggregation, where credit card records, Facebook data could be combined? So, okay, I present myself on Facebook in a certain way, but what about my credit card records? And you know, maybe I do some more shady things with my credit cards that I may not present myself as on Facebook. So you can target individuals in psychographic ways. We, of course, see these examples of extraterritorial surveillance, right? Like the Chinese spy balloon. Um, but also many examples of other states spying on other states, right? Like, you know, we see it across the board. Um, and then I think about who are our great privacy protectors today, of course, other than the ACLU, which fights a great fight, and I've long been a fan and supporter of my own bias there, right? But you think about, is Apple a protector of our privacy? I think often of how I, I sometimes like to take pictures of Apple billboards of privacy, and I remember one that I took a picture of recently that said, your privacy protected, and it was literally just a giant image of an eye, like an iris or retinal scan. Is that where we are when it comes to questions of surveillance and privacy? So with those kind of two cents out there, I think I want to start by getting us to talk a little bit about the mechanisms of surveillance. How does surveillance actually occur on a, perhaps on a technical level, without being too technical, but the nature of surveillance. What kind of data is being collected by whom and in what ways? And, um, and how do we even begin to kind of unpack what surveillance is outside of it just being some sort of like general label or source of anxiety uh, at this time? So, you know, we'll just, we can just, uh, I'll, I'll open this up, but perhaps, Mohammed, would you, would you get started on this? Sure. Thank I you. Mean, I think that it's important to answer this question, to take a look at surveillance sort of in a historical context and understand where we've come from and what, the, what is happening today. Because I, I would argue we can't understand what's happening today in terms of surveillance if we don't understand the roots of surveillance. My argument is that this problem is a longstanding problem that's built into the fabric of certainly the US American society and definitely the economic system that sprang up from, uh, from the US and that is now exported globally. Right, so back in, if you think of the late 17th century uh, and early uh, 18th century, surveillance was integral to the mechanism of control over slaves mm -hmm. and indentured mm -hmm. servants. Mm -hmm. Like this, uh, Virginia, for instance, in 1720s, 1730s, developed militias specifically to go into places where they feared that there would be congregations of slaves and indentured servants and people who exhibited disorderly behavior. Right, the idea was they wanted to surveil them. They wanted to control them. Fast forward right, to the late uh, 19th century, or uh, all throughout the 1800s, the mechanism for dealing with poor people was poor houses, where, you could, where the government would run these institutions where poor people would be in them. And who minded them? Keepers, right? Keepers, people who were designated to watch poor folks within these poor houses, to surveil them, right? So then poor houses became eradicated through a series of sort of policies and movements, one of them called the Scientific Charity Movement, and wherein they, uh, that movement specifically create, um, instituted these things called friendly visitors, where instead of poor houses, people would be sent to poor people's homes and monitor them and ask them questions about their morals and spiritual values because under the theory that morality and spirituality is going to elevate you out of poverty, mm. right? Then you go into the New Deal, the beginning of the modern welfare and administrative state. People think it's progressive. It might have been in some contexts, but also the New Deal and the sort of welfare state that it created had built within it an architecture for surveillance, midnight raids, sort of tests for moral fitness, a whole bunch of things that basically cemented the role of the state as a surveiller of poor people. Right? And then all the way up to today, where in sort of surveillance itself, the idea of collecting information, particularly about poor people, is built into the fabric of society, whether you're asking for, um, you're applying for government uh, benefits. You have to submit yourself to like drug tests, DNA tests, you know, all kinds of different things. E even if you're, if you're a poor person working in the employment context, there's CCTV cameras, you know, your employer, if you're an uh, Uber delivery driver, it tracks your movements. You know, if you work in retail, there are mystery shoppers that employers uh, sort of deploy to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? So this entire history, I'd argue, is longstanding and is based in the fundamental sort of need for the state and the private sector to control 
poor people in particular and poor people's value. Um, and that sort of system is sort of tied into a, a sort of fundamentally carceral project, a project of controlling people and incarcerating them and extracting value out of them. Right, so the, the great scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about one of the first prisons built in America, in Trenton, New Jersey, right, above which it, uh, there's a door to it. Above it, there's a stone that has etched within it the following words, that those who, uh, that those who are feared for their crimes may fear the law and be useful, right? Be useful. I'd argue that the surveillance state and all, everything that you've described, Ramesh, is designed to force poor people, particularly poor women, to be useful and to spend. Wow. Um, Faiza, would you like to pick up on this at all? Like the mechanisms by which these things are occurring? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, just to build a little bit on what Mohammed was saying, I mean, I think the other aspect of surveillance which we've seen historically is as a tool for suppressing dissent, mm. uh, for suppressing people who are at the margins of what is politically acceptable discourse. And obviously, that changes over time, but that is definitely something that we've seen historically happen again and again. And we've seen it you know, most recently, obviously, when you look at the racial justice protests around the country after the killing of George Floyd. And then look at the mechanisms of surveillance that have been employed on those protests, right? So you have um, the collection of social media data that was a big mechanism where they created dossiers on people who were arrested in these protests uh, as, as part of uh, you know, trying to figure out who they were and who they were connected to so they could also go talk to their friends and families. Um, you had drones deployed overhead by Customs and Border Patrol. What they were doing at these protests, anybody's guess. But I think it, it, it shows you also uh, another point, I'll get to it, in terms of sort of interoperability and sort of uh, the fusion of data and functions, which is something we see a lot of. Um, I think another thing I would point out is that not only are protest movements heavily surveilled, but particularly people of color are heavily surveilled. And that was true certainly in the context of George Floyd. But I would say, Ramesh, to your point about pivotal moments, for me, the pivotal moment, one of the pivotal moments, is 9-11. Sure. Because in the wake of 9-11, one of the things that the United, the United States took several steps that both facilitated government surveillance by lowering the standards for the FBI to collect information, right? So historically, you know, after the big scandals of the 1970s, Watergate, you know, spying on uh, Martin Luther King, trying to get him to commit suicide, after all of these scandals, there was a big moment of reform in this country. And one of the principles of that moment of reform was that we should not have a far-reaching domestic intelligence infrastructure that the FBI should only be collecting information if they suspected you of doing something wrong, not just because they kind of want to know what people are doing. After 9-11, the threat environment was so elevated that that one principle was removed. And I think we see the repercussions of that, not just in government surveillance, which is no longer constrained by this, so that the government has itself built up a huge domestic in infrastructure, which then also absorbs all of the information that comes from private actors, whether it's you know a license plate reader or your social media feed or I don't know your credit card transactions. I mean, there's just so many sources of data; it's almost difficult to catalog them. But I think, for me, that is a very foundational thing to keep in mind because that is the permission to build domestic intelligence infrastructure. You know, Mashinka, I saw you also sort of nodding your head when, when Faiza mentioned people of color, and I know you are very much involved in sort of thinking about the, the political questions and the artistic questions and questions of even v violence in relation to, to surveillance and even its connection to AI. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to invite you to 
to share your two cents on, on this theme. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. And I, I'll start off by saying I know that we're gathered here today to discuss surveillance in the local US context. But um, Faiza, as you were speaking, I couldn't help but think about the fact that today, just a few hours ago, uh, as there's been an ethnic, a violent ethnic cleansing unfolding in the Republic of Artsakh targeting its Armenians um, in Azerbaijan, the uh, activists who have been speaking out against this have been targeted and jailed and arrested. Amnesty International just, just posted about this about seven hours ago. And so uh, the, the particular mechanisms of surveillance that you were describing have been very front of mind for me throughout the day. Uh, to, to return to your question, I think that what we are seeing now is uh, the transformation of what we once thought of as surveillance into data valence, mm -hmm. into the uh, reformatting of the human body as a robust data profile or data body that can then be transformed into an object of knowledge. And that is both a classed and a deeply racialized process. So thinkers like uh, Simone Brown, for example, in, in her very important book, uh, dark Matters on, on the Surveillance of Blackness argues that biometric recognition, which is uh, surveillance that operates by quantifying the body, can be traced directly to histories of how enslaved people uh, were tracked and traced uh, through their embodiment. And uh, thinking about poorhouses, Virginia Eubanks in Automating Inequality talks about how um, algorithmic models for determining for example, which social security claimants receive benefits and which don't based on the surveillance of their financial records represent the kind of translation of that poorhouse model into di digital space. So I think that what we're seeing is what we have always seen, but automated and implemented at a scale that is mm. unfathomable. Mm -hmm. So the quantification of identity, right? That the self or the identity being reduced to a set of data points that are not just aggregated, as you were as you were alluding to, um, Faiza, but also retained potentially for a long period of time. How does this sort of construct or reconstruct a power in a certain way, where you know, where in a sense, perhaps like the Trojan horse of like um, our our cell phones can open up a gateway to this to a kind of new type of pol polity and economy in this way, Mohammed? Yeah, I mean. I, uh... I think it's in part the, the owners of the technical means to surveil um, happen to also be the ones with sort of outsized political and economic power in the society and thus makes, it's sort of like the perfect recipe for surveillance, right? Mm -hmm. So what I sort of like to think about is why, um, you know, as Mashinka says, why is our capacity for surveillance now um, orders of magnitude different than what it might have been in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Right? Um, if you think about it in two ways, one is data collection, the sort of capacity for storage of data is um, incredible. Right? In, in 1980, uh, that was over 40 years ago now, which seems hard to re uh, believe, but in 1980, <laughs> it cost upwards of about 700, maybe $750,000 to purchase one gigabyte of data. It costs about two cents today. Uh, right uh, in 1985, the world's uh, fastest and most uh, uh, powerful supercomputer, this thing called the Cray 2, it was the size of a small car. That supercomputer had about approximately the same sort of processing power as an iPhone 4, um, and it cost in sort of last time I looked this up in like inflation-adjusted dollars, it cost about 32 million dollars. <laughs> right, um, the iPhone 6. So just two years later, but like we're on iPhone 15 now, right? So that was like about a decade ago. That iPhone 6. Uh, was more powerful in terms of instructions per second than any computer NASA ever deployed in its Apollo space program, right? So the, the people who like own and uh, create and can operate these tools, whether it's like the sort of storage tools or the analytical tools, are hap um, have incredible power, incredible sort of means to uh, um, to conduct the form of surveillance that that. Um, enables them to pursue these sort of racial control projects or these projects of capital exploitation. And that, I think, is the problem. We have not democratized the mechanisms for surveillance. Um, those still are in the hands of, um, uh, of, uh, of the powerful whose goals it is to exploit the information that we uh, sort of, that are fundamental 
uh, that is fundamental to our existence. And I yeah. think that's in part the power, that, uh, that's partly the problem I see. Yeah. yeah, and we'll all be going, you know, later in this conversation to questions of what we can all do about it. What do we, how do we try to uh, challenge some of these, these existing paradigms? But, you yeah, know, I mean, Faisal, I think, yeah. you know, the other thing that's sort of very related to this power dynamic to is secrecy, right? So most, I mean, you know, that's sort of the point of most surveillance is that it's not, out in the open, you don't know about it, I don't know about it, it's all sort of happening behind closed doors. And obviously I think people are much more aware of surveillance mechanisms now than they were even 10 years ago, even as, and the mechanisms themselves are increasing. But when everything is done behind closed doors, when I cannot tell you, you know, the Department of Homeland Security deploys these 27 tools and has access to these, you know, 15 types of information, and this is how they use it, and this is how they protect. I mean, I've got nothing, right? I can be shouting till I'm blue in the face that they're surveilling people, they're targeting you know, racial justice activists, they're targeting Muslims, but except for when that information comes out in a small story uh, and then there's a scandal, I don't have a systematic overview or understanding of the surveillance systems, which for people trying to challenge them, and I'm, you face this undoubtedly in litigation all the time, makes it really difficult, right? It, it's very difficult to challenge something that you don't un fully understand and mm. that you're always kind of grasping and, and trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, this is exactly where I want to pick up and then go to you, Mashinka. So there's an asymmetry here, right? Like mm -hmm. it's sort of like so much seems to be known about us, potentially quantified and collected for our lifetimes in increasingly infinitely, infinitesimally cheap storage models, which then give rise to algorithms, which are patterns written to analyze data, right? Uh, rules embed that are that applied to bodies of data. So then the question of who writes those algorithms, who accesses that data, the incredible asymmetry where we know almost nothing, right? I mean, please tell me if I'm wrong. We know almost nothing about what is being collected about us from state or non-state actors. And how do you think, you know, you're, you're, you do so much great work, Mashinka, on AI and, and, and AI activism and, 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 and our art, the arts as well within all of this. How do you think all of this might feed into, um, you know, stochastic parroting algorithms, which are the basis of, of so-called generative AI, like the like ChatGPT would be the one example, or deep fakes. Like, how is how how is this regime that they're describing feeding into um, some of these spectacles we're seeing today? Uh, that's an excellent question. So, two things. One, I think the reason that I'm so interested in what artist activists have to offer to the conversation about surveillance is that. The mechanisms of surveillance that we're subject to are so often completely invisible. So I think most of us in this room would probably uh, be likely to agree that we are subject to surveillance at any given moment in time. But then if we're asked to visualize what that looks like, what it means to be embedded in that structure, that apparatus, then it becomes a bit more intangible. And I think that what artists and artist activists give us is a way to visualize what is otherwise rendered invisible and opaque, um, rendering transparent the opaque. And so uh, I was you know, thinking in, with respect to your work, Mohammed, about an artist called Mimi Anwoha who has a project, the Library of Missing Datasets, where she gathers together data sets that have either not been collected or that have been collected by government actors but n are not made available to the public. And one of the data sets in this uh, cabinet is the specific mosques surveilled by the FBI. Mm -hmm. And so we know that this is a practice that the FBI engages in, obviously, but we have very, very little access to what the outcomes and products of that process are. And um, I'm really, I think that something that we can glean from the cultural sphere is, is how to visualize not only those processes of surveillance, but how to visualize ways to respond and redress those processes. Mm -hmm. And we will, yeah, please, Faisal. I mean, one thing to just kind of think about in all of this, too, is, I mean, we've been talking about collection, we've been talking about storage, we've, talked to, we've touched on analysis, right? But there's an assumption built into all of this, in particularly the government programs, right? Which is that this, who is the guy who did total information awareness? This was back in the Bush years. That this idea that this total, like, if we can gather everything about everybody, or most people, um, that we are going to glean like really important insights from it that are going to keep us safe. 
And I hate to tell you this, in my like, I don't know, 20 odd years in working on this stuff, I have yet to see a government program that has metrics that demonstrates its usefulness. Right. The, I mean, when Snowden happened, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of shocking. You look at these GAO, Inspector General reports and these programs and they're like, like literally every one of us that, they should have metrics to measure effectiveness. Like, really? I think so. Um, but I think that's one of the things out, that out of Snowden, right? So yeah. Snowden came out and he taught the two big programs he revealed. One was called Section 215. Um, that was a domestically oriented program that was focused on collecting metadata, right? Yeah. That program was, was never shown to have contributed to counterterrorism. It was actually severely curtailed by Congress. And then a couple of years ago, the NSA just like, you know what, we're shuttering it. So obviously this thing that, you know, back in 2011 was just like the be all and end all of our national security really wasn't the be all and end all of our national security. They did just fine without it and they shuttered it themselves. Now the other big program, which is very controversial and is up for reauthorization this year is what's called Section 702. And the Section 702 program is supposedly a foreign-oriented program which operates without a warrant. Now you all know normally, you know, when you collect my emails or my, my phone calls, you got to get a warrant. But this program is supposedly targeted overseas and it can collect all of this information without a warrant. The problem is that people overseas talk to Americans, they email Americans, you know, they send them text messages. So there's a huge amount of Americans' information that gets caught up in this Section 702 net. Um, and that's the program that, you know, when it was passed by Congress, it was, it was pretty controversial, um, but it, it's set to sunset every, periodically. This year is another sunset year. Um, and this might be the year that we finally actually get some serious constraints on 702. But the reason I mentioned 702 is that unlike, say, Section 215, there are actually some indications that when it comes to foreign intelligence, 702 has some value. I mean, maybe it doesn't have quite the value that the government says it does, but it does seem to have some measure of effectiveness. And they are able to point to at least a handful of situations where information from this sprawling program that basically siphons every piece of internet traffic uh, has had some security benefits. Now, whether they're worth it, given the expanse of the program and not just the cost, but the privacy cost of it, I don't know the answer because we, we don't know those, ki that, those kinds of information. But there are, effectiveness is also key, right? Mm. We can't just let the government get away with saying, I gotta collect it all, because somewhere in there, you know, in one billionth piece of data, there might be something that one day, maybe five years from now, might possibly help me do something that keeps yeah. you safer, which is kind of what they do. Yeah, and, and very tied to it, and I just wanna bring this point up, Mohammed, to you, and then we can talk about what we wanna do about all of this. Um, and you feel free to start on that as well. Our, our, our concerns around algorithmic discrimination and algorithmic bias and algorithmic violence, which is a term um, you used when we were speaking earlier, um, Mashinka. Can, I wanted to just give you all a chance to, to touch on that theme, and then we're gonna pivot to talk about what we wanna do about all of this. Um, sure, I mean, I think, um, I, I'd make two points. Yeah. Uh, the first being, uh, uh, I think it's self-explanatory. The algorithms are products of humans, and if humans are discriminatory and abusive and awful people, then their algorithms will be discriminatory, abusive, and awful, and awful in turn. Right? I think that seems relatively uh, abundantly clear, and we've seen, seen this pan out. Um, but I think the second kind of more interesting point that I'd make is that part of the reason why they will be abusive, they will be dangerous, and that we should be really um, careful and scrutinize them, is that a lot of the things that they, that, uh, that the state or indeed um, sort of private companies want out of these algorithms are things that even they cannot themselves uh, appreciate, understand, or define. 
Right, so what do I mean that by that? Like the, uh, what I mean is that there are things that even us humans, like lawyers, like myself, like don't have any clue like how to, how to define, and yet we're going to, what the government wants to do and what certainly private actors want to do is use algorithms to define, to, to help with, with that. I'll give you two really quick examples, right? One is uh, uh, the question that the government always wants to answer, which is who is removable? in the United States. In other words, who is subject to deportation? Who here is a, deport, uh, a deportable non-citizen? It turns out that question is incredibly complicated, and humans mess it up all the time. One of the reasons why it's super complicated is that there, for a lot of people, um, they are citizens, and they don't even know it. Um, how so? They, under immigration law, you can derive or acquire citizenship by operation of law if, in certain circumstances, like if your parents naturalize, and you're under 18. If that happens, you become a US citizen automatically. You don't have to file any paperwork. It just so happens, that happens. The most famous example of this is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a US citizen, actually, because of this process. Wow. Now, uh, because you don't have to file any forms, the government may not know that you're a citizen. Uh, and indeed, you may not even know, because you may not know that your parents naturalized, or you may not even have known your parents at all. Right? And so what happens? It is not uncommon for the government to uh, detain and imprison people who are US citizens, thinking that they're not. And indeed, there are instances in which the US government has deported citizens. Mm -hmm. right? And yet, the US government wants to use algorithms to determine who is a US citizen. Right? They can't even figure it out, yet they want a computer to do it. Right? That's one example. Another example might be uh, uh, in the sort of terrorism context. There's a massive ter uh, database called the terrorism, um, uh, the TSC. TSDB. Uh, uh, TSDB, yeah, the ter uh, Terrorist Screening Database. Right? How, um, in it, there's something like 1.6 million people within that database, right, that are designed, a database designed to people uh, for whom the government or foreign governments suspect of being terrorists, right? What I want to do is I want to read out one of the criteria for being on this um, list, and I want you all to think about whether or not a computer can, uh, can make this determination. So one of the ways you can get on this list is if the government or a foreign government nominates you, a, quote, upon articulable intelligence or information which, based on the totality of the circumstances and taken together with rational inferences from those facts, creates a reasonable suspicion that the individual is engaged, has been engaged, or intends to engage in conduct constituting, in preparation for, in aid or in furtherance of, or related to terrorism and or terrorist activities. Huh? <laughs> that determination, the government wants uh, a computer yeah. to make. All right. So the question, be, like, they, they don't even understand what this is. I mean, I'm a lawyer, and I can barely tell you what probable cause is, let alone reasonable suspicion or any of these terms, right? How can a computer make these determinations? So I guess um, part of my fear about this sort of the, the new algorithmic world is that it, they, it cannot do the things that even humans themselves are incapable of doing. And I fear that, that the, pro, the result of that will be incredibly dangerous mm. for the most vulnerable among us. And, and you use the term uh, Mashinka algorithmic violence. I'm just curious if you want to say anything about that and, and help us get started, if, if you're willing, on what are some of the things you think we mm. can start doing about the status quo? Sure, I think that a lot of the terms that we tend to use to discuss uh, this set of scenarios is, is very euphemistic. So algorithmic bias, algorithmic unfairness, um, very much implying a kind of surface level set of effects and, and consequences. I like algorithmic violence, which comes from Mimi Onwoha and other terms like algorithmic oppression from Sophia Noble, the new Jim Code from Muha Benjamin, discriminating data from Wendy Chun, uh, algorithmic violence in particular because it brings to the surface that the effects of algorithms which we perceive as immaterial are actually material impacts and material harms. What do I mean by that? Um, thinking about the question of surveillance at the border, the virtual perimeter walls and biometric facial recognition checkpoints that are installed by companies like Anduril are a form of algorithmic violence in that they are an obstruction to people accessing their basic needs. Um, the uh, PredPol predictive policing algorithm, which results in the over-policing and over-surveillance of communities of color is a form of algorithmic violence. And I think it's very important to be precise about the way that we uh, frame these processes in language, because it's only then that we can begin to understand what we're actually facing and how to intervene. Thank you. So Faiza, I'll, I'll go to you about in this last part of our, our conversation before we move to Q&A. 
what are some of the things you think we can we can start doing about the status quo instead of sort of just feeling perpetually anxious? Yeah, <laughs> perpetual anxiety. Well, I think I, th I think you can operate on two levels. So I think on a personal level, there's a lot of stuff that each of us can do in terms of digital hygiene, right? Just simple things like you know when that website asks you whether you accept all its cookies, just go down there and turn a bunch of them off because that'll just make it that little bit harder for them to collect your information, so why not? Um, I think it's important to use, you know, depending on, on how, how complicated you want to get, but, but browsers that let you browse anonymously or, you know, a VPN if, if, if you want to do that. I think these kind of basic things are, are a signal to the companies that we value our privacy, that we do not want to be tracked across the internet um, and shown advertisements for whatever it was that you searched for you know, one day on the net. I think the other thing, obviously, is um, to get involved. And I think that you know, you're in California, which is great, lovely, sunny, good food. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but even though California is a liberal state, it doesn't necessarily translate into the votes we need in Congress when these issues come up. I think, you know, from working with folks on the Hill, you know, what's happening in, with their constituents is super important, right? So if you see something going on that you read about in the newspaper that you could, um, you could write to your congressperson or even better call them or email or whatever, and sort of express your concern about these issues, I think that actually does have uh, a, uh, an impact. You know, one of the things I, I've noticed recently, we've, you know, we've been working with um, Senator Gary Peters, who's from Michigan. Mm -hmm. And Gary Peters is really concerned about the watch listing issues. Why is Gary Peters concerned? Because he has a lot of Muslims in his uh, district, right? So, and so he gets pressure at home which then translates into an interest at the congressional level, which maybe will translate into an opening for some changes to the, the way you know, the TSDB is, is structured. So these things do matter, even though it feels like you know, you're a voice in the wilderness sometimes, I think. Um, and then obviously, I think, you know, particularly when it comes to you know, regulating AI, I mean, I think everyone expects that California is going to be one of the states that's going to be at the forefront of, of that regulation. I mean, certainly Cal ECPA was you know, thought to be a really good step forward in terms of privacy rights. So I think there are certainly opportunities to get involved in those campaigns as well. And then, of course, my friends at ACLU Southern California always deserve your support. Yeah, let's no, <laughs> that's, that's tease it up for you. You know, many states around the world do have various types of comprehensive privacy legislation actually out there. Um, they do, they do, though the, the, there are lots of uh, potential problems. I think certainly sure. in California, um, there is some, some statewide legislation that, that um, advances the ball somewhat mm -hmm. on, uh, on privacy issues. Um, and so uh, things like uh, allowing um, California residents the right to delete information, for instance, that are, is collected by like a private entity or something like that. I mean, I think for me, the more sort of like interesting and, um, and frankly hopeful place of resistance to surveillance is a sort of deeply grassroots local organizing mm. that I've seen certainly in, in the Southern California, but across the country, right? Organizing that is not merely interested in sort of showing up to city councils and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't spend a whole bunch of money on license plate readers or <laughs> body cams or whatever, but that is actively opposing every single surveillance program and demanding a fundamental dismantling of this sort of architecture of surveillance. Mm -hmm. Certainly we have that here in, in uh, Los Angeles through an organization primarily led by an organization called the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, yep. Yep. Um, but their uh, models exist across the country. And I think, um, I think it works. And the reason why it works is because it's fundamentally local and it's run by uh, primarily uh, sort of organized through people who are impacted by these sort of surveillance um, regimes. And because it's local, you have a lot more power and you can organize and you can go face to face and say, hey, don't you agree with me that X, Y, and Z is wrong or is problematic? And I think that to me, more than anything else, um, it makes me incredibly hopeful about the future. I don't know if you agree, Mashinka, yeah, but we'll it's up to, to you, Mashinka, to I, 
close this out, yeah. So uh, in 2021, as Ramesh mentioned in my bio, I co-curated a show at OxyArts um, on critical imaginaries of AI, and one of the uh, programming events that we held was a workshop with Stop LAPD Spying mm -hmm. Coalition. Mm -hmm. um, I fundamentally and, and vehemently agree that there are things we can do as individuals, and they're effective to varying degrees, but where we are really going to see transformation take place is through collective organizing and through the work that we do together. Wonderful, and you know, it's worth noting Americans across the spectrum um, are not happy with the status quo when it comes to surveillance and privacy. So it is time for us to close, um, correct? And um, we, um, we're gonna, oh wait, yeah, of course, we've got a Q&A right now. Okay, that's why I saw the two hands up, sorry. All right, so we've got a Q&A now. Yeah, um, and if you're okay. here in person, um, please come over to the right of the stage to ask a question, um, or you can text the number on your wristband. But we'll start with an online question. Um, so what does effective resistance to modern corporate surveillance look like? Other than personal harm reduction, like refusing to use Alexa or biometric logins, what can consumers do to stem the tide? All of, all of you. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in groups like Electronic Frontier Foundation um, and other groups that are doing the work of gathering data about the people responsible for gathering data. So any practice of data collection is an exercise of power, right? And if that data collection is happening in one direction, if it's our data that's being collected, then one of the ways that we can intervene in that is by shifting the directionality and watching the watchers, right? Surveilling the surveillers. Um, so involvement with the groups that are doing that, I think, is one very, very crucial way to, to do something meaningful. Either of you want to add um, two cents mm -hmm. to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, certainly I think that's right. Uh, I also think um, uh, we could also, in some ways, sort of vote with our wallet a little bit. When it comes to sort of the private sector, I do think um, that we can make smart decisions sort of collectively about the kinds of sort of uh, technologies and mechanisms for surveillance that we bring into our own lives, right? So. Um, uh, so, for instance, maybe don't use the cloud when it comes to putting uh, uh, a camera on your sleeping baby, or you know, maybe not uh, think twice about like a Ring doorbell camera that like gets uh, that uh, makes footage of like your front stoop easily accessible to law enforcement. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things are decisions that sort of individuals can make, and certainly decisions that we can impact. Um, broader segments of society to make too. So a good example of this, um, I'm very proud of this, is uh, I read an article um, in the Wirecutter, which is now a, sort of a, a website that's operated by the New York Times that basically is a consumer uh, like rating agency that's like, you know, uh, uh, here are the 10 best like mattress toppers and like, you know, they like rank them and review them and you like buy a great mattress topper. So they did this, but they did it with, I think, one of these sort of surveillance tools. And, um, and I, in my uh, being incredibly reactionary, I like tweeted about it, as like you do when you're under 40. Um, and I got, uh, and they, like, they were like, oh my god, we're totally, you're totally right. And like, I had a conversation with them. And they like, switched up some of their sort of recommendations based on the sort of privacy policies of some of the companies that they, um, that they recommended. You know, stuff like that that I think can actually go a long way in terms of making sure that, um, that the private sector understands that there is active resistance to some of the sort of more flagrant of their sort of data collection and surveillance practices. And to build on that, right, like not just yourself, but like friends and family, like you can actually like impact people in your closer circle, I think. I think I've gotten at least two people to give up on Alexa. Amen. <laughs> oh. yeah. oh, uh, back to you, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Javon Mallory, I'm a student here. Um, hey. So uh, with uh, surveillance, it has, uh, you know, it's, it's solved, you know, countless number of crimes, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't have been solved without, you know, surveillance. So do you kind of see where surveillance might be a necessary evil? Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, I think anytime that we're thinking about surveillance in relationship to security, it's really important to ask whose security and often uh, the people whose security is, is being upheld through surveillance tactics 
are the people who are uh, in power and not disproportionately subject to its harms. So for example, whereas facial recognition has been used on certain occasions to accurately make arrests, it has also been used on many occasions to falsely flag people uh, and falsely detain people. And the people who have been falsely flagged as a result of facial recognition have disproportionately been uh, darker skinned people who are more likely to be misclassified by biometric recognition systems. So I think that when we take examples like that into account, then the cost-benefit analysis of whether um, an accurate decision that will help the carceral state do its job better, uh, that begins to break down. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. I, um, to me, I guess I, the, um, another way that I think about this particular problem is to ask the question, OK, is um, to distinguish between the question of whether surveillance is useful versus whether surveillance is necessary. Um, certainly, I think surveillance can be useful if you're the state and you're trying to end quote unquote crime. Uh, so even assuming that there's a category of crime that we want to end, let's assume that for the moment, um, is surveillance useful to, to um, to limit crime, probably. Like if, if the government had everybody's DNA um, in like a vault somewhere, would that be useful for committing crimes? Sure, would they use that to like, oh, sorry, would that be useful? Well, it certainly would be useful for committing crimes. <laughs> but it would also be useful for solving crimes, theoretically, right? If the government had cameras literally everywhere, could they use that to solve some crimes? Yes. But the question, I think that's not really the important question. The important question is whether it's necessary. Right? Mm. And to that question, I have not seen empirical data that suggests that surveillance as, uh, um, it, in the sort of ways that we've been talking about um, ends up giving us positive public safety outcomes. It just doesn't exist. There's nowhere will you, will you find uh, some uh, sort of empirical data that suggests that cameras or biometric surveillance or drones or anything else will limit, solve crime, even crime in the sort of like traditional sort of mainstream sort of consciousness of what crime is. It doesn't exist and, no, and you won't find it. And so even I challenge, I, I may not challenge the first assumption of the questionnaire, because I do think surveillance could be useful to solve crimes generally, I guess. Um, uh, but the second question of whether it's necessary, I think there's simply no evidence to suggest that. And to Mashika's point, there, that if you perform the cost-benefit analysis, it is at least my argument, that it is far more devastating and injurious to the public than any of those individual cases that where something might um, uh, end up uh, positive. Yeah, and, yeah, and amidst it all, I just want to say there's a lack of clarity around what is being surveilled or collected by whom, for how long, where that data goes, how is that data being aggregated, and how is that being used through algorithms that can be rules and applied to code to construct outcomes that I mean, can create to, these problems. To your point, actually, you know, when, um, so in New York, we had a, a rash of sort of random violence on the subway a couple of years ago, and people were really worried, right? People were very anxious about riding the subway. So they announced that they were going to be putting cameras in subway cars. Um, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because people were like, oh, great, there's going to be cameras in subway cars. But if you actually go back, because that's actually one of the things that's been studied is cameras and whether or not they, uh, they are effective. And there were several studies in, uh, there were three studies actually done uh, to see whether uh, cameras in parking lots, right, which is a place, I guess, where there's a, a, a fair amount of sort of, you know, car theft, vandalism, those kinds of crimes actually had an effect on, on those kinds of crimes. And they didn't. But you know what did? Lights. So sometimes it's like the low-tech solutions and the sort of simpler things mm -hmm. that actually contribute to public safety. And I think, you know, sort of going back to my point, like I would really like to see efficacy demonstrated. Mm -hmm. If the government is going to put in place gigantic programs which have huge societal costs, um, then they need to be able to show that this is actually also going to have a positive outcome for people rather than just assume that more is always better when it comes to information. Wonderful. Uh, back to you, Sarah. Yeah, so here's another online question. And again, if you're in our in-person audience, do come up and ask yours right here. So do you think it was the National Security Act of 1947 or the Patriot Act that basically set the foundations for the federal government to conduct surveillance on its own people? Hmm. Gosh, I never really think about the National Security Act. Um, 
that sort of set up the infrastructure of the agencies. Um, but I, you know, and certainly, you know, the, the, the foundation of surveillance domestically was really often about sort of in the modern incarnation, if you sort of, you know, put aside the, the story that you were saying, telling, uh, Mohammed, it was really about dissent, right? It was really about suppressing protests, whether they were, you know, anarchists or um, um, communists, um, you know, racial justice protesters, civil rights protesters. And I, I think of sort of the 1970s and the church committee as a point on which there was an attempt to cabin domestic surveillance, right? And that was an attempt, you know, that was um, very strongly resisted by the intelligence community sort of across the board. And even though new rules were put in place, there was sort of constant pressure to change them and to give more flexibility uh, on, on domestic intelligence. And I think after 9-11, you had the Patriot Act, and then in 2008, the FISA Amendments Act, and I think together, those two laws really kind of destroyed any idea that, that domestic surveillance was something that should be collected when people were suspected of a crime. And I think it comes back to something you said, Ramesh, earlier, which is when I think about the ideal relationship between the government and the individual, I think the government should only know about me what it absolutely needs to know. But I should know as much about the government as possible. And I feel like that, that you know, sort of, to me, ideal rule is completely turned on its head in today's society. And I think I just want to add, it's, it, this is a state-citizen relationship, but I think corporate actors are using our personal data to create and generate one of the most unequal economies in the mm -hmm. history of our planet, and, and, and which is lending itself to automation and AI systems that are threatening labor as we know it. The gig economy is an intermediate stage to such. I have students you know, at UCLA who are driving for Uber in student debt, driving for Uber with the UCLA degree. You know? So what's up with that, you know? Um, <laughs> Uh, Sarah, do we have time for a final other? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we great. Do. Yeah. Okay. Great. Hi, I'm Leah, and I was wondering. Well, first, thank you for this um, great lecture, and I was just wondering, what's an alternative to surveillance in like an ideal world, yeah. and how can we use data to kind of increase transparency and um, open data? Mm. Great question. Shinka, would you like to start with that one? Sure. If it's and, uh, <laughs> a tough one. <laughs> an alternative to surveillance, that's such a fantastic question, yeah. and I love uh, following that trajectory to a kind of conclusion, but I think the, the alternative would be a decolonial, decarceral state of, uh, yeah, collective abundance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> collective abundance. Collective <laughs> abundance. Um, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in terms of the transparency of data, I mean, I think that there are so many actually very uh, generative and really hopeful uh, deployments of data that I'm seeing now that are around community-driven data. So um, instances where community members collectively determine that there is a need, a local need, to uh, gather information, computable information, about something that once gathered will increase their collective quality of life. They determine how that data will be gathered, who will be doing the data gathering, the circumstances under which it will be performed, and what will be done with that data. And they retain uh, sovereignty over that data. Mm -hmm. So I think that community data practices would be the kind of, um, if there is a utopian vision uh, of data deployment, for me, that's what it would look like. So I'm a little less poetic, <laughs> but, I, but I think, uh, you know, and I think this is the, the, the theme that I've been trying to sort of hammer home today, which is that if your intelligence is related to suspicion of crime, it certainly doesn't get you to abundance necessarily, but it is an achievable goal, I think. Um, if, if that is your limitation, right, that you, the government, and I am mostly concerned about the government, though obviously the private sector feeds into that, but if, whether it's the government collecting data itself or whether it's the government purchasing data from private actors, 
that you can only have that data if you suspect me of a crime. Then you get my data, right? So that gives you the advantage of the data um, without having you know, all of these, you know, not all of them, but you, it actually mitigates a lot of the potential for abuse on the government side. I don't think it takes care of the surveillance economy issues at all, but at least for purposes of, of this issue area, I think it is a very useful step forward. No, um, Sarah. Yeah, so we have time for two more questions. Someone in our online audience asks, what do I do about my right to privacy and how I've been violated for the last three years by a manager in, quote, poor people housing? Oh, that's interesting. I feel like that's a great one for you, Mohammed, to start with. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, there are lots of ways that um, uh, um, sort of recipients of either of state um, uh, support, whether they're kind of low-income tenants or other forms of sort of um, uh, government assistance, are constantly monitored and surveilled. Uh, if this individual is part of that sort of process, it's a little bit difficult, but there are ways, there are sort of active movements to try to resist that um, sort of the unnecessary collection of information as part of the state's desire to frankly limit the amount of uh, government assistance is doled out. Um, if the questioner is, um, is not a recipient of that kind of government assistance, but is the subject of sort of data collection from like a private landlord and things, um, in theory, there should be, at least certainly in California, but perhaps in other places, there should be basic protections that may, uh, sort of legal protections that may prevent the kind of like invasions of privacy and potential surveillance that um, a tenant in uh, a situation like that would, would face. So um, perhaps one thing that the person should do is not to toot my own horn, but contact the local ACLU or, uh, um, uh, uh, organizations that represent and support tenants, of which there, certainly in bigger cities, are um, are plenty of, for sure. Either of you want to add to that, or can we go to our final question? I'm good. Yes, to, to you, sir. All right. Um, so will there ever be any legislation enacted to limit companies like Clearview AI uh, from selling our biometric data? Yeah. I think all of us are working on these fronts in different ways. I, you know, I've, I was I was just working on a biometric AI uh, bill with uh, a couple senators and their staffers, as well as a couple Congress people. The issue is a lot of these end up becoming partisan issues, and what I'm being told by a lot of staffers is only China-oriented yeah. content tends to go bipartisan. You all tell you all know DC, you know DC well, FISA. So, you know, I'm I'm. You know, I, I'm, it's a frustrating situation when it comes to comprehensive digital rights reform, um, and it, particularly in relation to AI and its profound impacts on disinformation, deepfakes, labor, and so on. But I want to see, hear your Yeah, thoughts. I mean, I think there's sort of two things going on in Congress now that, are, that have potential. So one is that um, I think it's been since 2020 um, there's what's called the ADPPA. Oh God, I can't even remember what it stands for. It's the American Data Privacy Protection Act or something like that, um, which, was, which was, there was a pretty decent bill that was introduced by Senator Cantwell, um, who's the chair of the Commerce Committee in the Senate, which has jurisdiction over this. Um, and there has been a second version of ADPPA, which was introduced last year, I'm sort of spacing exactly on who introduced it, but it was a pretty prominent senator. Um, and there's been some sort of discrepancies and issues around the bill. I mean, it's not, a, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think it has relatively decent bipartisan support. Now, whether that support will be retained or not remains to be seen, um, and it would and it's basically aimed at constraining somewhat the collection, transmission, and use of information about all of us. And it divides the information into sort of two categories. There's sort of sensitive information, which is biometric, health data, 
not political affiliation, interestingly, but a few, a few sensitive categories, and those would have higher protections, the rest of it would have lower protections, but it's not bad, you know? I mean, it would certainly be way better than what we have right now. Data privacy is also very much part of the second conversation which is going on uh, in Congress, which is around, just triggered by chat GPT, but is more generally about how are we going to regulate AI more broadly. Um, and the, the two conversations are very linked, right? Because you know, generative AI can only operate if it has access to huge pools of data. So if you restrict the amount of data that can be collected in the first instance, you're putting some constraints on the, uh, the, the sort of usability of generative and other kinds of AI. So the two conversations are very intimately linked. I think in the context of the AI conversation in particular, there's a lot of talk of innovation slash China which basically means, oh, we gotta let the tech companies do what they wanna do, otherwise we're gonna fall behind China in terms of competitive edge, uh, which does make me a little skeptical that this is gonna be uh, too much more than it is. On the other hand, I will say there's a lot of, uh, not a lot, there are a few strong voices um, on the Hill which seem to be saying, you know, when it came to social media, we didn't regulate and it turned into a hot mess and we shouldn't make the same mistake with AI where by the time we figure out what its harms are, it's so integrated into our social and economic fabric that we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a consciousness of that and I think that's on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Senator Cotton, believe it or not, is mm -hmm. one of the voices, I think that's who it was. Oh no, it was Josh Hawley, sorry. Sure. Uh, Josh Hawley has been very outspoken on that, as well as, as sort of senators on the Democratic side. So there's a little bit of hope there, um, but I think it's very much, you know, watch this space. Mm -hmm. yeah. Any other thoughts on this? Okay. Um, well, it's time for us to close. Um, so thank you all for this wonderful conversation. It has been an honor to speak with each of you. Thank you to everyone in our audience for joining us tonight. Thank you to all of you who are online for joining us tonight. Um, you'll be able to find a summary of our talk at zocalopublicsquare.org by tomorrow. Wow, that's fast. Plus <laughs> interviews with all our panelists. Wow. Please subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, as I do, podcast and social media, and follow the Progress Network and ACLU of Southern California as well. Mashinka, uh, Faiza, and Mohammed, thank you again for sharing your time and insights with us. Everyone, please give our guests another round of applause. Now it's time to hang out. So thank you all for joining us this evening. <laughs>